Hello, let's get started. All right. Uh, my name's Jake, um, and welcome to today's talk based around the motto, You Can Be Good Without God. Uh, glad you guys can make it, especially on a Monday. Uh, I know it's pretty difficult for all of us. Um, just a heads up, uh, we'll flip. Um, uh, this event's run by the Christian Union, um, so thanks to all the people that were behind planning this talk. Um, today's talk um, is given by Dr. Dan Cole, um, and he's going to talk about this um, Good Without God motto and whether um, it's a healthy way to live our lives. But before we hear more about what Dr. Cole's putting out, let's hear about more about the man himself. He's part of the teaching staff at Trinity Bible College in Leaderville. <laughs> he completed his PhD in another Trinity College in Chicago. Um, Dan loves helping people grow in the knowledge and love of God um, through, seeing, um, through seeing the riches and wisdom in, of Jesus in the Bible. Um, that sounds um, all lovely, but we want to know more about Dan. So could you, spend us, uh, could you tell us a bit more what you spend your time doing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a husband to Emily and a father to three kids who are just about to bring into their teenage years, so that takes up a lot of time. Um, yeah, you know, footy presentations, netball games, surfing lessons, all the rest of it, but that's just for Emily. No. Um, yeah, so that takes up a lot of time. I'm a member of a local church, so I go along on a Sunday night, I help out with various things there, which is great. Uh, during the week, I spend time teaching and training students uh, to think about the Bible and to read it well. Uh, and then if I get any spare time after all of that is done, um, I like to just kind of sit in a dark room and listen to music. Uh, or play the piano, or uh, take photographs, you know, kind of decompress in those sort of ways. Cool. Um, yep, and we heard that you lived in Chicago for a while as well. Yes. Um, How do you find Perth then, compared <laughs> Warm. <laughs> now, I don't know, I was going to make a comment about the weather being so, so much better in Perth, because in Chicago you spend six months of the year under snow, uh, and so, you know, every day I'd have to get out and shovel the car as the first thing in the morning before anything else happened. Uh, so Perth is great for that, but it's also it's a really laid-back environment. Uh, so, you know, Chicago has 8 million people uh, and lots of guns. Um, you know, so we lived in a very safe part of Chicago, but there's other parts you wouldn't drive through uh, in the middle of the day, let alone at night. Uh, and, you know, there was one weekend where there were 23 fatalities and 117 shootings. Um, you know, so I love Chicago, but you know, don't have that news every night of the week on the news. Yeah. Well, um... Perth sounds great in comparison. Absolutely. <laughs> um, is there anything about Perth you would like to change, though? Yeah, I wish the shops were open later. <laughs> I know, and that's just my selfishness, right? So actually, if I think about it, uh, it's, it's great that the shops aren't open because then people get to be with their families more. Uh, but whenever I want something from the shops, it's inevitably at 10 o'clock at night when the shops are shut. <laughs> and that bugs me knowing. <laughs> well, very wise, word. very wise words from Dr. Cole. Um, do you think it's your deep wisdom that you were asked to speak on this topic or oh, some other reason? I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess you're kind of asking how I got interested in ethics and morality and justice. And I think ethics is just an interesting subject for most people. Uh, so I was chatting to my 10-year-old yesterday afternoon and uh, telling her what I was doing today and she asked to come along. You know, because at 10, she's even talking about rights and justice and that sort of stuff. Uh, it's inherently interesting. Uh, and then throughout my studies, I trained as an engineer originally, but did 
general education, I don't know if you have that here or not, it's basically trying to make engineers into humans. Um, <laughs> so I did general education in politics and argument uh, as kind of extra subjects and found that really interesting. Then when I went into uh, Bible college and uh, Christian ministry, everyone's got ethical questions. You know, I had someone ring up who I'd never met before and say, my husband wants a divorce, I don't feel like that's the right thing to do, how do I approach this? You know, she had no uh, framework or understanding of what that's going to look like or anything like that. And then just going forward, I ended up doing my research in uh, the ethics of the New Testament, especially uh, one of the, the writers of the New Testament, a guy named Paul. Yeah, well, thank you for all that. Um, if anyone has any questions, um, please save them for the end, um, and you can ask Dr. Cole uh, afterwards. Thank you. Perfect. All right, well, thank you for having me. I'm going to start by reading a short passage from Paul, uh, so from one of the writers in the New Testament, just a few verses, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll start to think about ethics together. Uh, this is, uh, Paul was a guy who planted lots of different churches. He's writing to one of the churches that he planted, and one that wasn't going particularly well. So he's in the middle of a fight with them, uh, and they were kind of very negative towards him, and here is what he writes in response to that. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing whether I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his condemnation from God. Let me pray. God of heaven, we thank you for giving us the rain and the way that you provide for us uh, in every way. Thank you for uh, giving me this chance to speak now. I pray that uh, you would help me to speak truthfully, that what I say is truth, uh, and that it is important for us to hear. Uh, Father, please be with me and all of us now as we think about this very, very important topic. Amen. Well, just over 10 years ago, there was a guy who was originally from Melbourne named Toby Ord, and he'd moved to Oxford to study. Has anyone ever heard of him? No? Okay. You know, university, you never know. Uh, Tony had moved to uh, Oxford to study practical ethics. Uh, and while he was at Oxford studying, he decided that he had to start to put into practice the things that he was teaching about. So he started giving away his money to some of uh, the poorest people in the world. And he, he had two big questions he kind of had to ask as he started to think about giving away his money. The first was, how much was he going to give away? Uh, and he settled on the median income of the UK at the time, uh, which was around 20, uh, sorry, £18,000, about $32,000 Australian in, the, in uh, current money. That's still what he lives on. So he gives away around 40% of his income. Uh, the second thing he had to work out was who he was going to give his money to. Right? If you're giving away that amount of money, 40% of your income, you want it to actually do some good, don't you? And so he decided, he decided to uh, subscribe to a way of thinking called effective altruism. It's basically a way of thinking that says that you can scientifically, rationally, economically measure the good that you can do with your money. And then you work out based on these rational principles how to give and who to give to. That was 10 years ago and since then 
uh, Toby and his wife, who's a doctor in the NHS in the UK, they've given away enough money that they could have outright bought a small house in Oxford where they still live. Not only that, uh, Toby decided he needed to go further. And so he set up uh, a, a movement of people called Giving What We Can. And this movement of people decided that they would give at least 10% of their income uh, along the lines of this effective altruism idea. Now, I looked into them last week, and uh, uh, Giving What You Can now has over 4,000 members in a number of different countries. They've given away, so I've got the stats here, they have given away over 100 million US dollars already. And by the end of their lifetimes, with the pledges, if they keep giving at their current rates, they, just these 4,000 people, will give away 1.5 billion US dollars to these very, very worthy causes. It's amazing, isn't it? How good is that? Now, I don't know whether Toby is a Christian. I don't know whether giving what you can and its 4,000 members are Christian or not. They don't actually uh, specifically have any Christian ideas as part of their worldview and the way of thinking. Uh, they're consequentialists, they're actually utilitarian. That means that what they do is they measure harm and good and weigh it up that way, right? So if you were to give away 10% of your income, the harm that it would give to you would be less than the good it could do for someone else, right? You're measuring utility, that's why it's called utilitarianism. Right? And this is what they're based on. See, for uh, Toby Ord and for this group of people, uh, giving what you can is not just a kind thing to do. It's a matter of justice. It's actually a matter of right or wrong. You see, for Toby, it's not fair that you and I think nothing about dropping 10 bucks on a boost juice. Whereas uh, most people, you know, over 4 billion people in the world live on less than 7.5 US dollars a day, and that's adjusted. See, once you start to put it like that, you start to feel it's not fair, isn't it? Right, you can kind of just start to feel something within you rising. This is a matter of justice. And as a community and as a society, justice has become something that's much more important these days than whatever it was. I, I walked in here, I caught the bus down here this morning, I walked in, and there were people handing out flyers for climate change and refugee reform. Brilliant! Isn't that a good thing? I mean, most of us walked past and ignored them, I take it. We've seen them before, we'll see them again. We ignore their flyers, we probably, uh, you know, grumpily think that they're just wasting trees. But there has been a kind of a reformation of um, social reform and of concern for justice in our generation. In a way that previous generations, it was, it was very limited. People today care a lot more about justice than they used to. Especially young people, right? It's inconceivable 20 years ago that it would be Aussie uh, high school students who would take a day off school to protest climate change. Or that it would be American high school students who would be at the forefront of uh, the protest against their gun laws. But now it just seems commonplace. Of course this is what, this is what justice is. This is right. This is, uh, we've just got these feelings about it, right? We, we feel good when we hear about uh, people like Toby, even if we don't think too hard because we have to ask questions about ourselves. But we, you know, it feels good, but we, and we feel outraged when we hear about 117 shootings in Chicago over a 4th of July weekend when it's sunny and everyone's out. Right? You feel the outrage boiling up within you. 
And it might not be that topic, but we've all got topics that we find about fair and unfair, about what's just and what's not just. When you're personally insulted, when something is an injustice is done to you, doesn't the outrage rise within you? The justice is something that we're all interested in. But, because it's often emotive, it's got to do with feeling and, you know, the swelling up of pride at humanity or outrage at humanity, justice as a thing is not something we often think very hard about. We kind of think, I, I, I just know justice, I feel it, it's right, it's good, it's fine, I'll go on. So what my task today is, that I've set myself, is to kind of define what justice is and then start to think a little bit about the foundations of that justice, especially whether our intuition and our rationality can form a viable basis for justice. But we need to start with the definition of justice itself. Uh, for this, I decided not to uh, just rely on my own intuition, because that would be a, a rather interesting place to start, I'm sure. But I turned to Michael Sandel. I don't know if you've ever heard of Michael Sandel. He is the leading political theorist at Harvard. Uh, he's done a course on justice. Uh, the BBC published it. It's one of their most popular uh, courses that they've published. Uh, as apparently well over a million people have tuned into this course on justice. He's got a book on justice as well that is uh, very, very stimulating. Here is the way that he defines justice. To ask whether a society is just is to ask how it distributes the things that we prize. Income and wealth, duties and rights, powers and opportunities, offices and honours. A just society distributes these goods in the right way. An unjust society distributes them in the wrong way. A just society gives to each person his or her due. Now that last line is really important there. A just society gives to each person his or her due. What's brilliant about Sandel's definition of justice is it's not just about punishment, right? So when we think about the justice system in Australia, we think about the law courts that are involved in retributive justice, that is, uh, for giving you back what you have done wrong. But justice is so much bigger than that. Right? This is why Toby Ord will say that, no, it's not fair for you to have a $10 boost juice. It's not just. It's about distribution, not just about retribution. Interestingly, Sandel's definition actually downplays the fact that sometimes people do deserve uh, to have their rights taken away from them. Right? If people are put in prison, that is their right to liberty and various other rights is taken away from them because of their actions. See, justice goes both ways. It, both, it asks what everyone deserves and therefore what good they deserve and what bad they deserve. What rights they deserve and what rights they do not deserve. See, this is what justice is. It's not just a feeling. It's how we as a society think about how do we do life together well. See, for Toby Ord, to come back to him for an example, it's just to give away a significant portion of your wealth. As I said, it's not just kindness. It is fair and good and right. It is wrong for Toby Ord, for him to keep, or he says, to keep that proportion of his wealth. It's actually unjust. But see, Toby's going to go a step further. He's going to say it's also unjust for him to keep his wealth and then give it to uh, another charity that isn't as effective. Right? He has to actually, because of his belief in effective altruism, 
He has to measure scientifically what's most just and then give it to those. But if he was to give it to someone else, that wouldn't be just. And already you can see where some of the pushback can kind of be, right? So if you're an effective altruist, you would say it's unjust to give to the Cancer Council. Or to give to Ronald McDonald House. Right? Because these things, these charities, they're not doing the same amount of good. They can't do as much good, if you're Toby Ord, they can't do as much good with $100 as what uh, Compassion or World Vision or something like that could do in a struggling country. Right? They can save lives in a way that uh, the Cancer Council can't. Yes, cancer research is incredibly important, and now you start to see the problem. See, other people will uh, condemn, not condemn, but can say, Toby hasn't got it quite right, when they'll say, it's not dealing with the systemic issues. See, effective altruism measures all things by uh, the quality of life, and since most people, uh, 4 billion people, don't have the quality of life that we've got, Toby Ord's going to say, well, equal rights for women or for minorities, that's out the window too. Until this problem over here is solved, these people have a much better quality of life, so my $100 can do much better over here than this piece of person over here. Even though they might be being uh, persecuted uh, and disabused and all the rest of it. And now you start to see the hard questions. That when you give $100 to World Vision, or you sponsor someone, is that a better use of your money than giving it to the Council Council? Or giving it to the MS Institute? Or giving it to uh, fighting refugee detention in Australia? There are very serious and intelligent people who differ greatly when it comes to ideas of justice. And this should actually tell us that our intuition uh, is subjective. I mean, we know that. That's right. But if different people's uh, definitions of justice and their intuition about justice is different, how do we navigate that in this world without just descending into a shouting match? See, because this is what we kind of think. We think, well, justice is obvious. I know what's right, I know what's wrong, I know what's fair, I know what's not. You know, when my kids were little, the, one of the very first things that come out of their mouths, it's not fair. Right? Uh, last night, one of my 10-year-old stayed home from church. She wasn't feeling well. The other two went to church. There was church dinner. They got Mars bars after church. What do you think my 10-year-old daughter wanted, even though she wasn't feeling well when the other two came home and told her about it? A Mars bar. Why? Well, it's not fair that they got a Mars bar and I didn't. Right? We all have these intuitive notions of justice, even from the earliest age, and we think, oh, it's so obvious. But what I want you to consider now, to ask yourself as we keep going is, is intuition uh, a, a, a good foundation for justice? Is it as obvious as we think? And what I want to do is pull apart a few different ways in which our justice and our intuition don't line up together. The first way I want to say is that we don't have the whole picture. That as individuals and as a society, we don't have the whole picture that allows us to make intuitive judgments about justice. Alright? And so you can see this. Uh, this comes from the Christian doctrine of creation. I hope I'm not telling you something to say that you are not God. I'm not God either, and you should be very thankful for that. Right? Because we are not God, we are creatures, we are limited. 
We are time-bound. I don't know you. I don't know most of your names. I don't know most of your situations. You see, I'm very limited in what I can know about other people, and therefore it's very hard for me to make a judgment, a moral judgment about justice for you if I don't know you. But even more than that, I don't really know myself, and you don't know yourself that well either. See, uh, psychologists have this thing called the end of history illusion. The end of history illusion is basically the idea that you think you've reached who you're going to be for the rest of your life at this point in time. You might think, okay, I'm going to change a little bit, but I'm not going to change that much. Uh, Dan Gilbert, uh, a psychologist at Harvard, you know, he's got unlimited access to 18-year-olds. So he uh, just started surveying a whole bunch of 18-year-olds about how much they thought they would change in the next 10 years. So between 18 and 28. He asked them about you know, preferences, about their moral ethics, about uh, their values in life, all these kind of things. And he measured that and then he kept following them as they kept getting older and would do this survey every, you know, he would do it on groups of 10 years, right? So you do 18-year-olds, 28-year-olds, 38-year-olds, 48, etc., etc. Right now, as, as people, I'm guessing most of you in this room are somewhere between 18 and 25. You kind of think, well, I've done most of my growing up by now. I might change a little bit more. I'm assuming I'll change a little bit as I keep going, but I'm mostly done. So you kind of estimate the amount you're going to change now. Dan Gilbert found that the average person, the average 18-year-old, the amount of change they estimated was actually the amount of change that a 58-year-old underwent between 58 and 68. Right? And you can think of, think of your own parents or your grandparents, how much they might have changed between 58 and 68. That's how much they estimated. How much they actually changed was about six to seven times that. And this isn't just in preferences. This is in uh, your moral code and your values and your ethics as well. See, we kind of think we've reached maturity at whatever age we are. And our intuition is based on what we feel is right and wrong now, but you're going to be a very different person in 10 years' time. And yet you and I make judgment calls based on our intuition of what we have now, thinking that we're not going to change. And we're appallingly bad as a human race at thinking about our own futures. Because we're limited. See, but we're not just limited as individuals, we're also limited as a society. As societies, we're really bad about thinking about what the future is going to look like and predicting it. Uh, so you can see it in uh, the shock election results in the UK, the US, and Australia in the last three years. Uh, one of my favourite illustrations of this, though, is the internet. Uh, the internet rose to prominence in the 1990s, and the people who were involved in kind of making it a worldwide thing, do you know what they thought the internet was going to be and do? They thought it was going to lead to human utopia. Because all of a sudden there was going to be this free exchange of ideas and everyone was going to be lovely and there was going to be this new human enlightenment as people just came to this new understanding and there was going to be in a way that the world had never seen before. And some of you are all already smiling because all you have to do is go look at a Twitter feed or a YouTube's comment section. Alright? That's what the internet is now. All, every single one of those pioneers of the internet have either had to come out and say we're wrong or it's just taken a lot longer than we thought it would. Because <laughs> they all thought that by the year 2000, the internet would have revolutionised humanity for good. But we know what the truth is like, right? We know that that's not how the internet works. That's not what humans are like on the internet. 
See, as a society, we're also not particularly good at predicting what the future is going to be. And yet we kind of think, well, as a society, we've got our norms, we've worked out what's self-evident. And yet if we look around the world, there's lots of other societies that have very different self-evident values from us. See, our society uh, is one among many. We're not valueless and kind of, we just, we get self-evidence in a way that other people don't. Right? But, as a society, we're really bad about thinking about what the future is going to hold. We are finite creatures. We can't predict the future very well for ourselves. We can't predict the future very well for us as a society. But more than this, because we're finite creatures, we can't see into other people's hearts. We can't see their motivations. This is one of the things that Paul said in this letter. As I said, he's writing to a church that is judging him, uh, making an evaluation about him and kind of writing him off. But Paul says, you, you actually don't have the ability to do that. You have to wait until the end of the world when these things will be made known because my heart is mine and I'm going to keep these things hidden. Right? And you know this, you know that you hide your heart from other people at points. That there are good things and bad things about you that you don't want other people necessarily to know. And yet, it's very easy, isn't it, for everyone in society to find the justice and the inclinations about justice that we agree with and, and map those to good desires of the heart, to love, even if those people are doing it out of hate for the people that they disagree with. It's very easy for us to find uh, people that we disagree with and have very different inclinations about justice than us and say that they are motivated by hate even if actually in their heart they're motivated by love and sincerity. You see, now as a society, we judge people based on their motivation to love and to hate. Now, that's a, a very recent thing, and it actually arises from Christianity. Uh, in the ancient world, before uh, Christianity kind of came to prominence, people didn't evaluate justice on the basis of love and hate. But once you get Christianity taking hold these motivations of the heart start to become important for people. Do you, are you motivated by love? Are you motivated by hate? <laughs> and we start to ascribe those to other people even though we can't see their hearts. And even then, even if we could, that sincerity of love is not enough, is it? But we know that sincerity is not enough. So if we kind of combine our history of illusion idea sorry, the illusion of the end of history idea and the sincerity idea together, what do we get? Well, we kind of think, well, we don't excuse people in the past for their sincere wrongness, do we? Uh, you've only got to look in the US in the last uh, five years as a number of civil servants have been, uh, have had to stop working within the US justice system and other, other areas because uh, they were involved in blackface back in the 70s, right? So they painted their face black in order to go to a fancy dress party uh, at a various college, and they have been rightly condemned. Or think about the stolen generation here in Australia. Right? That it was an appalling act, and we know that, that was unjust. No one is ever going to excuse them on the basis of sincerity and love. And yet we want to have that for ourselves. We want to say, as long as I'm acting sincerely, then everything's okay. I must be just if I'm acting sincerely, because I'm acting in line with my own intuitions. 
You don't think the people back then were, even if they were, what they were doing was wrong. Do you see that we are very limited in our ability to see the hearts of others, and even if we could, we need something bigger in order to establish justice. But we actually need to take it a step even further than that. Not only are we not very good at seeing other people's hearts, we're actually not very good at seeing our own heart either. And Paul also says this uh, in the passage that I read. He says, my conscience is clear. He's talking about himself and his own evaluation of his heart and his actions and all that. But he says, that doesn't make me innocent. My heart and my conscience is clear, but actually I'm not the arbiter of justice for myself in the end. Because he knows that his heart is deceptive, that his heart is not transparent. See, this is the Christian doctrine of sin. That actually we do not live as we ought in this world and therefore we don't, uh, in order to survive in this world, one of the effects of sin is we start to justify the things we don't do as we should. We all do that, don't we? We know we've done the wrong thing, we feel guilty about it, and what do we do? We start to justify it. We start to think, oh, it wasn't that bad because I was being sincere, even if we're not going to allow that to a lot of people. Uh, that's okay, because actually we can even rewrite history in our head, can't we? We rewrite reality in our head. But one of the other effects of sin in terms of justice is we start to overestimate the things that we deserve. Remember, justice is about what you deserve, about the good things you deserve and about the bad things you deserve. And one of the ways that sin interferes with our intuition is it means that we start to overestimate the good and underestimate the bad. And to illustrate this, I want to ask you if you think you deserve to be at UWA. Right? Do you deserve to be here? You've worked hard, you've got good enough grades, you continue to work hard enough to at least get your P's to make degrees while you're here. Right? Do you deserve to be here? Michael Sandel, in his book on justice, uh, imagines this question. And it's, it's an important question in society justice, by the way, because of affirmative action. Right? That question of, uh, do you set aside a certain percentage of university courses in order to give them to people of less privileged backgrounds and of minority groups and those sort of things. This is not a, a, a lifeless question. But in, in the context of thinking about this question of affirmative action, he imagines what a, a university acceptance letter would look like from what he calls a philosophically enlightened university. Let me read it to you. He does it for law, but you can just stick in your own particular university course that you're doing. Dear successful applicant, we are pleased to inform you that your application for admission has been accepted. It turns out that you happen to have the traits that society needs at the moment. So we propose to exploit your assets for the society's advantage by admitting you to study. And we might want to add to that, as cynical Australians, the university will want to exploit us for our uh, monetary gain that we give to them as well. You ought to be congratulated. Not in the sense that you deserve credit for having the qualities that led to your admission. You do not but only in the sense that a winner of a lottery is to be congratulated. You are lucky to have come along with the right traits at the right moment in human history. Right? Because now I think about it, if you were exactly you and you were born in medieval England, 
then the traits that you have in uh, deconstructing literature or knowledge of how to build a building or the ability to think philosophically about something, they're going to be fairly useless. The society back then isn't going to want anything from you. And you'll have to get a whole bunch of other skills. You might be thinking, well, that's fine, that's good, but at least I've worked hard, I've recognised the skills that today's society needs, and I've worked hard to pursue them so that I can be here, and therefore I just at least deserve a little bit of credit. But Sandel has an answer for this too in his letter. The notion that you even deserve the superior character necessary for your effort is equally problematic. For your character depends on fortunate circumstances of various kinds for which you can claim no credit. The notion of desert, that is what you deserve, does not apply to university admissions. That might make you a little bit more thankful this afternoon to be at UWA. But he's right, isn't he, if you stop and think about it? That you happen to live in the right part of human history to have the particular character and traits and inclinations that actually society values at the moment. And not only that, that you are fortunate enough to live in a family or to live, grow up in circumstances where your particular character that is again a combination of the context in which you were raised and the particular genes in which you inherited from your family, neither of which is down to you in any way, shape or form that those things have given you what you need to get here. So you don't have the right to be at a university. You don't deserve that. But you're here and that's a great thing. I'm not saying that universities aren't good things. I'm not saying you shouldn't be thankful. I'm not saying that it's not good that you're here. But see, this is what we do, isn't it? We overestimate the rights that we think we have for ourselves because we're basing these on our intuitions rather than stopping and thinking about uh, where these things might go. Uh, Paul Samuelson, the father of economics, modern economics, puts it in a slightly more cynical way. Never underestimate the willingness of a person to believe flattering things about themselves. <laughs> I don't know if you're offended by that, but that might even be a marker in and of itself, right? So the rights creep that we have today now includes the right not to be offended. Do you think you deserve not to be offended? Isn't the fact of you being at university the fact that you are here to learn and grow? And part of that is going to be offence. But we all overestimate what we deserve. I do it. And you do it as well. Now what this means for justice, therefore, is that we're left with a rather impaired intuition. We do have an intuition about what is right and wrong. We do feel outrage at people detained on Mattis Island. We do feel good when we hear about someone like Toby Orr. This is right and good. We have this sense of, of, of justice within our hearts. And yet once you actually start to stop and pull this apart, it does become fairly clear that we're not particularly good at intuiting justice. That uh, we as individuals can't see what the future holds for ourselves. That we don't even know what our intuitions about justice are going to be in 10 years. And that we'll excuse ourselves for sincerity in the past, even if we're not going to allow that to other people. We as a society can't have good intuition about judges because judgment because we don't see what the future's going to hold. Even more than that, we can't see into the hearts of other people, even though we're very ready to do that. And we can't see into our own hearts. And so we are very prone to overestimate what we need. 
Yet in spite of all of these facts, you will still walk out of here today and long for justice. You might ignore the person handing out the climate change uh, flyers, but the next time you are wronged, something in your heart is going to flare up and say, that's not right, this isn't fair. You'll see things on the news and the TV and go, the world shouldn't be that way. So what do we do? What happens if we have a world where everyone just has their own intuition, an intuition that they can't see what it's going to be like in the future, that we can't predict our own humanity and our own society, that we can't see into the hearts of other people, that uh, we can't even see our own hearts? What kind of world are we going to have if we end up just living on intuitive justice as a society? That's pretty much the world we've got now. A world where the only way that you can now get justice is not to have reasoned debate and discussion and to talk about these things with mutual respect for one another, but to have linguistic assertions and forces of power. Because that's how you get justice, is you have to grab it by force. You have to shout the other person down. You have to use the buzzwords. I'm not saying that pejoratively, but you use the right words and that just shuts down the conversation. Because we all still want justice. But we have no means of actually thinking beyond ourselves intuitively about what justice is about. And you end up with the YouTube's comment section. Writ large across the university campus and across our city and our state and our world. And therefore, you end up with a world where stuff doesn't get done. Where we just get so tired of everyone talking to us about what justice is. Don't we? That we ignore the people handing out the flyers. That we tune off when we see the World Vision Act. Uh, this is where our world is now. When that justice starts the outrage in your heart, though, there is something else you need to be aware of. And that is, in its best expressions of justice, justice is blind. We know this, right? That's why... Uh, classically, on a law court, you would have Lady Justice holding the scales and have the blindfold over her eyes. Because it's not right that, even within our own justice system, that the, the more uh, wealth you have, the better justice you can afford to have. We know that's not right. Justice, in its best articulation, is blind. But that means that justice must be something not only that you long for and work towards in the world, but also something that you stand under. See, we need a world, if, we, if, we, if our heart's desires are right and we want a world where there is true justice, we actually need someone to come in and give us this justice who isn't limited, who can see the beginning and the end of all history and know where everything has been and where everything is going. Someone who can see into the hearts of you and me and everyone else. Someone who isn't limited by sin. Ultimately, this is why Christians will base their justice on God, because what you can see in the limitations on human intuition of justice, these things God is not limited by. The Bible will talk about God seeing the end from the beginning. The Bible will talk about God knowing the hearts of all people. The Bible will talk about God's perfection and His sinlessness. See, all of the limitations we have in our intuition, those are not things that God has. 
So if you long for justice, and if there's any sense in which God, you think God is going to come and put justice on this earth, then that justice is going to apply to you too. But you see, even if, you, if we set aside for a moment uh, God's holy and righteous justice, and you even think about your own standard of justice, you don't live up to that. I don't live up to my standard of justice. I don't know your heart, but I can be fairly certain that you're willing to forgive in yourself a lot more than what you're willing to forgive in someone else. That you're willing to explain away in, other people, in yourself the things that you possibly cannot explain in other people. Right? So, as a parent, uh, one of the things I'll constantly say to my children is, just because you're tired is no excuse that you... Right? Now, when I snap at my children, what's my excuse? I was just so tired. Uh, but we all do this, right? We look at someone who drops a massive amount of money on something we think is frivolous. We think that's not fair. And then when we go and buy a big purchase, well, it's because I need it for this or that or the other thing, right? We don't even live up to our own standards of justice, let alone an external one from God. So, I'm sorry. It's all right. You can come in if you want. Okay. We don't even live up to our own standards. But here is the amazing news of Christianity. Is that the one whom God who is appointed to be the judge of all people, he actually knows what injustice is like. See, I know that Senior will be giving out Apostles of Mark later on. That's account, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. If you go and read the last few chapters of that account of Jesus' life, you will see one of the most unjust uh, trials uh, in all of history. False charges brought by false witnesses, convened at a false time, and put through on false pretenses, leading to an execution of a man under a system and an execution on a cross that he never should have got under Roman law. Right? In Roman law, the only people you're allowed to crucify uh, were traitors to the nation of Rome and slaves. And Jesus was neither of those things. He knows what injustice is like. But he went through that in order that he might offer forgiveness and a way out of the just punishment that we all deserve. What Paul will say in another one of his letters is this allows God to be just, to be completely fair, and also the justifier to make other people in right, in right relationship with him, even though they shouldn't be, even though they deserve condemnation. So the question I want to leave you then is, well, what now? What do you do with this? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who follows Jesus, then I think for you it means that you actually have to think about what your notions of justice are like. Uh, because even as Christians, and rightly so, we in part intuit justice. We can't otherwise do it. It's the way that we're built as humans. And so part of it is making sure that we have a correct intuition about justice. But even more than that, it's very easy for Christians today, and if you're a non-Christian here, I'm sure that you've noticed this about us Christians, uh, it's very easy for us to start to grab at justice, to start to get very angsty about our rights being taken away from us, and to want to grab at this justice that we deserve. But what's the model of justice that we have in Jesus? How did Jesus achieve justice? He laid aside everything and sacrificed himself for the good of other people. 
Therefore, what's the model of justice that you and I as Christians can pursue? Well, that we would lay aside our own rights and give up things for other people. Not because we think that they deserve them, but because actually this is just a good thing to do. This is a gracious and right thing to do because this is what, how God has treated us. This is how we then can treat other people. Or what Paul will say later on in his letter to the Corinthians, imitate me, I've given up everything, Paul will say, just as I imitate Christ. What if you're someone who's here as a non-Christian? What does this mean for you? Well, what I want to say is whether you're someone who's come just to poke holes in this uh, today or whether you've come as a serious inquiry, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for listening, thank you for taking time out of uh, a busy week uh, as the semester starts to ramp up to actually think about this very, very important idea. But what I would love for you to do is not just take that Gospel of Mark and see what Christian justice looks like as Jesus himself comes and teaches about justice and then goes through atrocious injustice for us. But you would keep asking other people. Ask me, ask Jan, ask Jake, ask the people who brought you here. Because intuition, I hope I've shown you, is not a good enough foundation for justice. We are all limited in how we think about these things. But what I'll also say is, don't let this wait. Justice is too important for that. Justice is, is too important to allow it to wait. And partly because God knows that, there is a day coming when he will bring perfect justice on this world. And the question is whether you and I are going to be ready for that or not. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Um, uh, we've just run out a bit of time, so if you have any pressing questions, um, Dan will be outside. Uh, if you have to race off to a lab or a tutor or something and you still want to ask a question, on the feedback cards there is a I would like to ask a question box um, and just write your question on the back and if it's for Dan, just make sure you put that and we'll try and get it to him. Um, just quickly, so skip that. Um, we're running a um, Christianity Explored course, um, which involves people interested in Jesus finding out more about him. Um, if that's you, um, just put, I'd like to talk to someone about Christianity on your contact cards, um, and just put it in the boxes at, near the doors. Um, that's all for today. Uh, anyone who's going to the public meeting, which is Christian Union's public Bible talk, um, it's being held upstairs in Austin Lecture Theatre tomorrow. Um, yep. Uh, at one. One o'clock, yep. It's the time. Um, and we have one last talk tomorrow at six o'clock. 6.30. 6 um, at the tavern. So be there or be square. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Stick that one back in something. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll sort that out. That's right. I'll get right here.